0: Muslims living in locations like Australia, Europe, and North America exist within a context dominated by white racial norms and are forced to grapple with those conventions on a daily basis. If they succeed in meeting the presiding criterion of secular liberalism, they can be dubbed a quote-unquote moderate Muslim by mainstream society. In Radical Skin Moderate Masks, De-Radicalizing the Muslim and Racism in Post-Racial Societies, Yasser Morsi explores these contemporary social dynamics and considers the various ways Muslims don a mask in order to navigate the expectations of the dominant society. Here he offers three paradigms, what he calls the fabulous mask, the militant mask, and the triumphant mask, that represent changing tensions for the quote-unquote moderate Muslim. Morsi deconstructs the quote-unquote radical versus moderate binary the forces of racialized structures that shape everyday life and the historical circumstances of Muslims in the quote-unquote West. This is achieved through an autoethnography that destabilizes traditional scholarship and enables the reader to come to a better understanding of the psychological and material effects of being a Muslim in the times of the War on Terror and government-funded de-radicalization programs. In our conversation, we discuss the relationship between religion and race, the category of moderate Muslim, Franz Fanon, being a cultural translator, U.S. Muslim scholar Hamza Yusuf, Australian media personality Walid Ali, and comedian Nazim Hussain. Readings of Edward Said's Orientalism, British commentator Majid Nawaz, philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche and confronting the theoretical and practical norms of academic scholarship. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Now, without any further delay, here's my conversation with Yasser Morsi about Radical Skin, Moderate Masks, De-Radicalizing the Muslim, and Racism in Post-Racial Societies, published with Roman and Littlefield in 2017. Welcome, Yasser. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you?
1: Good, thank you. Great, uh, Ramadan Kareem. Um, all good. I'm happy, and thanks for the invitation.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you you making time uh, to talk about your your wonderful book, Radical Skin, Moderate Masks. Um, we always start our conversations at New Books in Islamic Studies with a little bit of uh, biographical info. Which, um, after reading your book, uh, which is partly in autoethnography, um, I learned a lot about you, <laughs> and, uh, but I'm excited to learn a little bit about um, what brought you to kind of um, the, the academic s- study of Islam and Muslims in contemporary society. Um, were there moments uh, that kind of influenced the, your interests or the, the types of approaches that you take or mentors that kind of uh, helped you think about uh, your subject in new ways?
1: Yeah, um, so the book was, I, I guess, um, a journey that came about through writing it. So it wasn't uh, something that I intended, the final product wasn't something that I initially intended with. And through the writing process or through the struggle of having to complete it, I discovered certain things that I wanted to say and certain, certain things that I thought um, I had what weren't, wasn't allowed to say. And so, through the actual journey of trying to write the book, complete the book, um, the book took shape, and I guess in many ways, um, the content was shaped by the form of writing as much as anything else. Um, and a series of ideas um, that came through me from you know previous mentors, influences from you know the post-colonial to the decolonial tradition, the likes of Fanon, Said, uh, and others, and it became really a, a reflection. Of an intellectual journey that I had taken from the very get-go when I first started studying philosophy and politics and trying to figure out or respond to the Muslim question. So uh, it's hard. It's hard to say in any one way uh, was it whether there was a intent or design, because I don't think so. It was more um, a spontaneous act, and uh, uh, that inevitably took shape from the moment I started tapping away uh, after. Nine months of silence. I, in six weeks, I I got it all out, and I said, "You know what? This is this is the book, and <laughs> wherever it may land, it may land."
0: Yeah. Um. So, uh, it's it's a really unique book. I think. Uh. I mean, especially in uh a kind of an academic context, um, you're going you're kind of disrupting a lot of uh kind of norms in terms of how scholarship is written, um. I'm wondering uh, if you could give us a little more background on um, kind of how things took shape because um, in the book you talk about that you were, you were writing this or, or plan to write this book, this project on um, countering violent extremism and government funded uh, de-radicalization programs. Um, and uh, that kind of hit a wall, um, in, in many ways, uh, from your kind of own, uh, personal stance on, uh, you know, being an academic and being a Muslim at the same time. Uh, also in terms of like these norms that, uh, you, you said for, uh, part of your kind of early academic rearing, you were trying to emulate and copy. And, uh, so, uh, I don't know if you can tell us a little bit more about sure. this uh, in terms of the, this, this kind of development um, of, the, of the book.
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, um, so I guess there's a, the, a broader picture and a deeper background, and then there's the actual um, invitation that came and my struggle with um, fulfilling what I initially uh, was asked to fulfill so I'll start with the broader background. I, for whatever reason, very early on, I came to to studies uh, late, and for whatever reason, I had developed this kind of inherent or restlessness within me to resist conventions and norms because I felt they were they were racialized in ways to channel a particular voice that um, had a kind of a Westernese ring to it, or for the lack of a better term, uh, the kind of normative voice and. I had within me an unknown urge to kind of bend the rules and break the conventions, um, try to find a different way, not only to say what I wanted to say, but in the form that I wanted to say it. Um, I guess uh, coming from an Islamicate tradition uh, where the oral um, tradition and storytelling um, was a big part of me growing up and connecting to my Islam, I, you know, there was there was part of me that I wanted to read the social sciences that I grew up in academia with, but also wanting to tamper with the way that we had um, been asked to be trained. Now, I, that lay dormant in me for a while. And, um, you know, in order to be able to get a PhD and pass my um, essays, I had to write along conventional lines. And um, that, that's what I got trained in. So uh, when it came to finally writing my book, I was fully expecting to continue that trend. But again, that restlessness was there. And that leads me to the actual details of the book. So I was invited by a couple of colleagues, Alana Linton and Gavin Tilly, to write for um, you know, a series um, around immigration struggles and so forth, and particularly looking at CVE, violent extremism, and how it was... Uh, a cover for racialized forms from the state to intervene into the Muslim community with, you know, it's not the first time that the state has used um, certain policing legislation to try to socially engineer a community's political response to both crises and otherwise. So I was looking at the literature of CVE and while reading, while doing the research, I continually began to try to write in response to how it's racialized, how it's used and instrumentalized, how it's weaponized to target the Muslim community and so forth. And, you know, the argument was there. It was always there. But I I then began to speak in somewhat neutral uh, position about this. And I could feel inside of me um, this anger and rage about uh, the long history of violence towards minorities in uh, Western states and so forth. And I was trying to temper this voice, uh, to give it um, kind of mild mannered, neutral um, disposition in order to make sense of the uh, racial undertones, and not just undertones, in some case, quite blunt racial um, pro- projects that were um, found within the broader CVE narrative. And I, I just couldn't do it. I, you know, I, every time I wrote a sentence where I, I spoke in, let's say, for the lack of a better term, this this neutral academic voice about what was going on, uh, the type of social science that I had learned, I felt something was fundamentally missing. And I, when I read it back, I didn't feel like it was me. It felt like it didn't feel like it captured what it meant to live as a Muslim man of say late, say military age under the crosshairs before the crosshairs of the war on terror. I mean, Islamophobia has multiple um, battle sites and multiple crosshairs and and various different sites. And the war on terror often targets, um, you know, young Muslim radical, politically radical men who are dissident in their views of um, the state. And I I, I I felt like I had to temper that, censor that, uh, shape my voice in a particular way, where effectively, um, to make it blunt, I had to perform a form of whiteness that uh, erased a lot of what was going on, uh, both in my head and, you know, metaphorically in my stomach. And it didn't, it didn't sit well with me. It didn't, it didn't let me uh, complete my sentence. That restlessness kept making me um, delete everything I wrote. So. Uh, that's the. Then I get to the stage where I've got nothing but a blank page. <laughs> Deadline is passed and my editors are telling me when do you expect your first draft. I'm trying to get them to give me four or six more weeks, just you know, to find a way to complete this book. And um, yeah, then I wrote Bismillah uh, on the page, and I just said, what would it sound like if I didn't censor myself? And yeah, and then I. Uh, what I couldn't write in nine months, I wrote in six weeks.
0: Hmm. Well, I'm I'm glad you went through that struggle uh, for for the end product. <laughs> um, so the the title um kind of uh mirrors or kind of uh pays homage to uh, Frantz Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks, um, and you talk about this book um uh, you know throughout yours as well. Um, and you you mentioned uh, early on that um, you say your sub- subjectivity collapse when you when you first read this book. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about um, how Fanon's work is important for you. Um, and then uh, what are the signifiers in your title, uh, this this radical and moderate binary? Uh, what do they mean in your project? Sure,
1: yeah. Uh, reading Fanon changed everything for me politically. Um, I was also—it's one of those books that I had to put down while reading it and pace up and down corridors to fully grasp both what was what was being said, but also, um, perhaps more powerfully, everything that was missing in my formal training up to that point. It's like reading Fanon changed everything, um, and I. It was, it, it was also the way it was written and the, it, the, the ability for me to kind of um, connect with, uh, although, albeit I have a different body and I'm in a different period of the colonial history and different locality and have different struggles um, and perhaps far less of a struggle than Fernand did, I, I still could connect to s- some fundamental Principles that came out of that book, especially the kind of dialectic between the body that I possess in the war on terror and standing before the white gaze, and what 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 it interpolates from me, what it demands from me, the kind of performance that I'm asked to perform. Um, and so, when I read for non, um, especially black skin white masks, I uh, pr- particularly uh, it, something shifted something clicked something changed but you know what's interesting about when i say something shifts something it's almost like i recalled something i remembered something that i had buried you know it, it was a kind of old truth that somehow i had observed um without having the vocabulary or the language to fully pick on and here's for none, put putting words to that experience and you know it, it felt like he was um helping me remember what i had one way or another forgotten um, And that's what was uh, particularly powerful about it. And that's independent from all the intellectual insights that he gives about the power relations and the dynamic of the racialized body. And for him, you know, what that white gaze demands from a black man and the various different inter-existent relationships he has with other subjects in this respect. And then there's a psychodynamic element to it, which has always fascinated me because beyond the kind of concrete realities of the way Islamophobia uh, performs its violence that always leaves a lasting stain on one's psyche you know and the fighting Islamophobia your, your whole life wears you down as fighting racism does and so the, all of that packaged together um, really helped um, uh, I guess inspire me to be a little bit more honest so when when it came to writing my book and initially you know talking about CVE and so forth you know, I, I began to recognize that I'm performing a particular mask uh, when I'm trying to hide behind this academic persona, and when I eventually wrote my book in that kind of passionate rush of six weeks, letting it all out. You know, I uh, the bravery that Fanon um, gave me allowed me to to do so. And so there's that um, uh, influence, and then there is, of course, the intellectual structuring of the book, which. Again, is uh, you know, a homage to Fanon. He helped me think about masks. He helped me think about what that may mean. And of course, the book also engages with Edward Said, who was another influence. But I also had like some resentment to Said. Uh, uh, I was inspired by Said. I went through various different stages of three or major readings of Edward Said, and uh, Fanon helped me navigate those readings and make me make sense of why one stage I fell in love with Said, another stage I was angry with him, the third stage I made up with him. All in my head, mind you, and Edward Said has no idea who I am, you know, um may rest in peace. Like so, um yeah, uh so that that's that's um that was the important influence. And then the other part of it was the I guess um Write an autoethnography, and there's there's elements of that in Fanon, and that is placing oneself at the site of their analysis, um, uh, self exploring um, what part of me is uh, social and what part of me is formed by the social. And in this particular sense, how much of me has been shaped by the war on terror, and that that haunted me. I mean, do I know myself politically outside of the context of um, September 11? I mean, how much of did this event trigger? Uh, a series of consequences socially and politically that led me uh, to take the path that I did. I wasn't really political prior to the second plane um, hit in the North Tower, I think it was. I That moment did something and I've never really been able to turn back to the Yasser that um, existed before that moment. So uh, the book explores three masks and maybe we can look at that a little bit later, but that's the influence of Fanon, it only made sense uh, to write uh, a title like that because of what Fanon had uh, done to both my academic and personal view of things.
0: Now, um, so you, you replace um, these uh, Fanon terms uh, for radical and moderate, and this kind of binary plays a really you know, important uh, kind of role in your book um especially this idea of moderate which is what the these kind of uh, three mass that um, mm. uh, you know we can discuss in detail further um, but what so where where does this what is this binary uh, how how does it operate in your in your kind of analysis
1: yes yeah, so i was uh, just like i was exploring the kind of um, pressure to be a particular type of academic writer when i first started this book that was a, uh, in the broader political context. There's been a continual pressure, as I read it, uh, for um, Muslims to perform a particular type of being Muslim that eases the the anxieties, the white anxieties that come out of the war and terror. And so often that uh, there is a result that we our starting position is uh, as Muslims that we have some type of uh, uh, relationship cultural political or otherwise and this is a result of the war on terrorist discourse with terrorism or violence or an illiberality that relates to our backwardness and the way we treat um women or the way we treat um uh minorities um sexual minorities and so forth there you know for the lack of a better term there's a uh, a signature stereotype of the Muslim being uh, pre-modern and outside of the sensibilities of modernity. And in, in the War on Terror's uh, scope, that means where fundamentally we deal with pol- politics through violence. And in that sense, that w- the radical element was also a result of the CVE narrative that is attempting to de-radicalize us, right? Attempting to remove that malignant pre-modern uh, part of us while maintaining a form of Islam, that was hollowed out of any, let's say, oppositional political energy towards the West. So the moderate masks were three ways that uh, the war on terror and society in general, not just CVE narrative, because uh, CVE became for me a manifestation of this kind of post-racial era where we want to keep uh, the idea that we respect and love and tolerate everyone—we want to keep the sense that you can, you're, you're free to be Muslim, but we want to hollow out your Muslimness from anything that is deemed um, oppositional, malignant, dangerous towards the West, and that means for us as Muslims who have to deal with the, both the everyday and social and political pressures, uh, we have to self self censor. Uh, eradicate that part of us that triggers an imagination of our radicalness doesn't mean we're radicals doesn't mean anything I mean I don't uh, subscribe to any support for terrorism or whatnot but I also resent the fact that if I'm a political dissident to the west that somehow I have to double up the work of you know as I said ease in the anxieties that my political dissent is born from some irrational pre-modern violence it's a result of analysis and the reading of history. It's a result of an ethics that I believe uh, in the freedom of all for all and the equality and justice for all, right? But that wasn't afforded to me if I'm at the center of the way democracy is weaponized or liberalism has a history tied to slavery and racism. So to answer your question the shortest possible way, even though I've taken a longer way, um, the starting point here is that we have this radicalness and that radicalness is grounded in a problematic Islam and then there's a social uh, as well as a political and personal pressure for us to wear, to perform a moderate type of Islam in order um, to ease the anxieties that we find in the war on terror, even if it comes at the detriment of us, our, uh, our political resistance towards the West. So the book explored, in a sense, three ways that commonly happens. And in that way, um, it's exploring uh, the way racism kind of, uh, tr- puts pressure on us to reinvent who we are, not for the political survival of who we are, but for white society to feel comfortable with having us side by side with them.
0: Hmm. Now, um, uh, the the category of race becomes a kind of central component in uh, that kind of inflects your lens hmm. through which you kind of examine all of these issues, uh, which I think is one of the really important contributions that you you, you make that. Uh, a lot of people might not be thinking about. Um, and you you kind of uh, use these terms, uh, the Apollonian and the, the Dionysian, mm-hmm. as uh, representative of forces uh, of this kind of the, the racialized structures of the world, uh, if, if I'm reading yeah. you correctly. Um, so can, can you tell us, um, uh, what, what are the ways that you use these terms? What do they, they sure. mean for you? Um, how, how do things like, um, critical race theory figure into your approaches, uh, to thinking about Muslims in, uh, contemporary societies, um, and, uh, and, and, and how does this operate in places like Australia or North America or Europe?
1: Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, So (laughs) I get to a place in my book where I realize, um, I'm resisting against, uh, Conventions of social science, in one way, and that, or I will to resist, right? But then at the same time, I've only ever been trained in that science. So what I, this is the reason why I adopted an autoethnography because I was interested in tracing, the like say the contradictions in me, right? And one of the contradictions in me is that I want to resist the West, but somehow I want to belong to it. And I've only ever trained in its Western vocabulary in order to make sense of the limitations of. Um, of that vocabulary, or the epistemic racism that underpins uh, the way we speak about Muslims and Islam in the CVE narrative. So here I had a choice, and that choice was do I try to, in a sense, feign a Muslim authenticity that purely relies on Islamic sources, and that for me would be a dishonest, dishonest act. I have a foundational commitment to Islam. But because of the colonial history that I find myself, because of the family history that I find myself, I'm thrown into the West, and all I have is its language to make sense of that thrownness. And so I, I return to the Nietzschean dichotomy of the Apollonian and the Dionysian. That was one of the first things that I read when I was studying undergrad in philosophy, the birth of tragedy. And I took from that two metaphors, the Dionysian and Apollonian, to continually make sense of um, my own condition. This was well before I was afforded the opportunity to read for non or critical race theory. I went in, did a B.A. in philosophy and politics, and basically, it's a an old but common story. I just spent the next three years reading white male philosophers of <laughs> um, you know of old and present age, and you know I had to make sense of this struggle, and uh, uh, Nietzsche gave me that because the synthesis that he talks about between the Apollonian and Dionysian became very early on for me a way to describe, uh, let's say, the Western Enlightenment liberal secular tradition as inability to synthesize its abstract ideals of freedom, equality, tolerance, with the Dionysian reality of uh, globalization or the Dionysian reality of dealing with difference. And so the Apollonian and Dionysian become two other metaphors for the radical and moderate. Um, The Dionysian for me is... um, just to give a definition of how I read it and uh, bastardized Nietzsche in a sense because at one point I'm like, I'm I'm just going to take what I, and this is the freedom of autoethnography, I'm just going to take what I take out of it. I want to uh, retrace how I used it rather than what it is. And so that's what I was doing. I, I was trying not to lie about how I got to where I got to. And so Dionysian for me became a symptom of, you know, this kind of, the reality of a world that's built on colonial history, the concrete realities that racism built, the zone of non-being—you know, the, the crushingness of um, of living in developed countries or coming from a, the, um, the global south, where you know everything is as, has a consequence as a result of what colonialism built. It's there's a kind of drunkenness to, to it. Uh, there's a kind of a disorder to it, but there's kind of real to it. Right. And then that's contrasted with. Uh, The Apollonian, which is an abstract set of fantastic ideals, a symmetry about uh, liberalism. And reading Ashish Nandi, I realized um, uh, that when he was speaking about kind of two sides of colonialism, at the same time, the European Enlightenment Project spoke about civilizing people, about introducing the best of ideals of science and freedom and so forth, what through the machinations of displacing people, of uprooting society, of replacing you know, um, their old form of agriculture and economy to replace it with a new form that uh, brought all the wealth to the global north. So there was was two aspects of it, the kind of hard, concrete reality of um, uh, colonialism and the wonderful ideals that, um, (laughs) you know, the enlightened Europeans told themselves about their project. And then uh, for me, that became uh, related to the post-racial. We maintain a language... Of equality, of freedom, of tolerance, of respect, of all people being equal to humanism. All the while, the concrete thing, the material thing that colonialism built, continues to, um, you know, run along neoliberal capitalist lines today. Um, displacement still occurs, exploitation still occurs, and we have this wonderful language. And that can—that for me became a broader metaphor for the radical-moderate dichotomy. You know. Um, for me, violence is born out of, not solely, let me be clear, I hate to be reductionist, but a major part of violence is born out of the the, the Dionysian world that was built. And um, I'm not quite sure just applying Apollonian ideals such as let us all be equal and so forth can correct that. There needs to be a synthesis and there needs to be an addressing of that Dionysian drunkenness that's born out of that. And so I use these to try to explain that maybe terrorism has more of a Dionysian element to it, and uh, the consequences of all of that is one thing that um, CVE rarely tries to address, right? So uh, to give you a concrete example of what I'm trying to say is a lot of CVE will spend a lot of time on what I call cultural talk. What do Muslims youth believe? How do they see the West? How do they interpret um, democracy? What do they think about religious minorities? Right? And that became a kind of de radicalization program. And all the while, it fails to address what comes out of consecutive wars, displacement, the Palestinian question. Um, and I'm just focusing here on the Middle East, where if you broaden the Muslim world, we can go from China to Burma, to there is constantly East Africa, there's constant violence that is occurring in this world that can be traced to the conditions or at least the parameters. And again, I'm not making a causal argument here. I'm not saying colonialism caused terrorism, but I am saying there's a correlation between the world it built and the conditions it built and the violence that comes out of those conditions. And CVE doesn't address any of that. CVE is more interested in these abstractions about how you feel and what you think and who you're hanging out with. And I felt that was a a reflection of the pressure for us to integrate into a Western myth Western Apollonian myth while neglecting the Dionysian realities of the world that many of us come from.
0: Now, <clears throat> uh, I, I really, I think all these kind of uh, ways of theorizing this, uh, I think you're really successful in the book. And I think, uh, I, I hope other people will read this because I think it's really a helpful way of kind of um, framing either specific case studies as a way you kind of um, Do in some of the parts of the the book here later on um, or even larger projects um, but so you you offer these three kind of paradigms uh, these three masks uh, the fabulous mask the militant mask and the triumphant mask um, and you 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 talk about how these represent these kind of changing tensions in your own identity uh, but then you also kind of tie it to uh, specific uh, subjects or even uh, kind of material objects like uh, uh, museum exhibits or things like this um, to kind of talk about how this exemplifies some of your own kind of anxiety, uh, which I think the the auto uh, ethnography does a really great job of uh, communicating for the reader. Uh, but the, this first one, the fabulous mask, um, you talk about this as uh, kind of being a cultural translator in a way. Sure. And I'm wondering if you could uh, explain what you mean uh, by this mask um, and how might we witness this uh, either in something like uh, a museum exhibit or um, through the uh, kind of individuals, personalities, personas, these kind of things.
1: Yeah, so I think I got um, off memory, um, again, because it was all ethnography and I was um, tracing uh, how certain ideas left an impression on me. I got this from Joseph Conrad, these three movements in colonialism. They, they reflect three movements in colonialism. First is the, the adventurous discovery co- colonizer who gets to, the, um, to the, the colonial land of the East, uh, the myst- mystical, exotic place, and it's fabulous, right? Um, you know, and then this fund then leads to this kind of military intervention before the triumph that occurs through the domination. Three kind of stages of Western fantasies of its relationship with uh, places that it's colonized or tried to dominate and so the first one was uh, that kind of exoticness and I I, you're absolutely right I'm tracing three sub positions that I adopted in my struggle uh, to find my place as a Muslim talking back so I was I wanted to be really honest about that because as a disclaimer very quickly before I get into this definition of the fabulous I became to recognize the harm of me performing authentic Muslim. Now, what I mean by that is like uh, there's a, there was a pressure for me to act in a particular way, um, and this kind of ties into the fabulous mask where I'm supposed to translate um some, you know somebody would ask me a question about Islam and I'm I feel a pressure to translate it in a beautiful exotic way and from a very early age mind you you know even before the war on terror to speak to uh, fellow primary school kids about how med- brilliant the pyramids are when I climb to the top of it or you know like the kind of do I own a camel as a pet right there's always this kind of feed in the Western gazes exotic it's need to hear about the exoticness of where I'm from um, So there was there was this pressure to be fabulous, in a sense, to fulfil that and to translate. You know, um, uh, the the kind of thirsty, hungry Western appetite to to explain who I am, and this fabulous moderate is the moderate that goes out and says things. You know, like oh the. The shorter as a grounding for democracy. That, like you know, we invented coffee. We introduced the chess to the chess to the Western world, where you know algebra comes from Muslims. We, we instigated the Enlightenment. We we're as carriers of Greek and Aristotelian philosophy. You know, we're always looking to integrate by speaking as if we're some type of postal worker that delivers the West to itself before the West realized itself, and that pressure to perform that role, or in a sense, perform a sense. Uh, we are fabulous, um, I think it's very detrimental. Uh, you know, at one level, it, it denies our humanness. It denies our weakness. It denies our ability to be the full kaleidoscope of um, human experiences, um, including being in a struggle in, with our own excesses, our own violences, our own societies and so forth. And uh, it's inevitably a mask that will slip off. But there was a pressure to do it. And the case study I think I used was um, the idea of a translator. And that is whenever I'm asked a question or wherever, I think I I, I spoke about Walid Ali, a commentator here, a a wonderfully intelligent man who's principled and wants to speak back. But at the same time, I have big, big problems with his politics around race. Um, And I felt that he, he was continuing playing this translator role. And the final thing I want to say about this is uh, is when you are playing this translator role, you kind of have to speak as if you're an insider, that you know something. Like Just because you're Muslim does not mean that you're an expert on the historical, political, social, aesthetic, ethical uh, histories of a massive world, right? Especially if you have to answer questions about what causes violence, and it really became an eye opener for me to see how many muslims adopted this role as translator that you know your your day job could be you're a teacher which is a fantastic job i'm not um disrespecting that position but then you put before a camera and they're asking you give us insight into the to islam and what the community thinks because a terrorist attack has just occurred and this teacher is now speaking as if they're um a veteran anthropologist and a lifelong sociologist about all that, all that's Islamic. And on top of all that was the aesthetic pressure of sounding fabulous. Hmm. Um,
0: you, you do kind of work through this, <clears throat> uh, through this, this, uh, this person Walid Ali, um, but you also kind of um, set up this foil uh, with uh, an, another uh, media personality this comedian nazim hussain um and <clears throat> for for a lot of listeners they might not know who these these folks are um mm-hmm. so could could you just briefly kind of tell us a little bit about uh why you kind of pair these two two folks together who they are and and why they uh they kind of both operate in uh through this fabulous mask but in different ways
1: sure so my context was principally australian so um they're fairly prominent, probably the two, I don't know, I haven't really, the <laughs> two most prominent Muslim men in Australian media. Uh, Nazeem being a comedian, Waleed being a golden Logie winner, which is our kind of, I don't know, Grammy or Oscar or something in Australia. Um, so they're, they're like if you ask the broader mainstream society in Australia name two prominent Muslims, um, uh, Waleed and Nazeem would, be up there uh, you know um definitely and they haven't really hid that they're muslim so that was also important there's, there's plenty of um um muslims in positions of authority in government and media and you know uh it's not really at the forefront of their identity which is this is not a judgment but walid and nizimu well known for being muslim so uh in australia they initially um Created this show called Salaam Cafe, which was one of the earliest interventions, uh, or the earliest attempts by the Muslim community to speak back to the pressure that came out of the War on Terror in the early days of the War on Terror. Right. So, and their whole job there was to play translator, and uh, that was one of uh, because it's an oral ethnography. That was I used them principally because um, I met them, know them slightly. I mean, you know, and. Um, I, they become a metaphor for me, a reference, an example that my head would continually return to. I would watch the skits that Nazim would make, the interviews that Walid would do, and the commentary of the op eds that he would write. And I always felt, I mean, I mean, me and with my friends at the time, you know, Walid would become a shorthand of speaking about what well, I didn't use the words at the time. Speaking about that fabulous um, uh, moderate, right, uh, that who's, you know almost too good to be true, right? And uh, I don't believe that was a proper reflection of the kind of pain, struggle, anger, hurt, disjointedness, Dionysianness of the Muslim voice and the kind of cleanliness and well-ordered and the humour that Nazim provided all of it uh, bothered me. But also with Nazim, it wasn't wasn't just that. He had a particular character called, I think it was Uncle Sam, and he put on this beard and wore thongs, uh, which is slippers, and now with socks, and performed this old uncle figure, put on an accent. And this became a, a an act of delight for mainstream society because we have Nazim, who's a sharp-witted, well-spoken, I think he was studying law, um, young, well-integrated Muslim, mocking this uncle, old-aged, uh, kind of outdated Muslim figure um, who had peculiar... Um, take some things and so forth, and that ability for him to slip into Uncle Sam, make everybody laugh at this figure, and slip out of it, uh, worked for reverse for me. And that is to say, he he's trying to tell everybody this is who, who you think we are, but I'm Nazim and Nazim became the moderate, the fabulous moderate, right? And I didn't, I never enjoyed that about them. I never enjoyed the fact that they had to sacrifice, uh, let's say, a different type of Muslim. In order for them to gain favour from where I'd never thought that as a proper project, a proper anti-racist project. Basically it's a game of tag here. Society's telling you Muslims are backwards, and you're kind of saying, Well, not all of us, right? And you're pointing at some other Muslim. And the the, the constructed figure of Uncle Sam here was an example of that. And um, if you wanna if you wanna be a, a moderate or a fabulous Muslim, go ahead. Like, right? That's not my <laughs> job to be whoever you want to be. It's the sacrifice that I had a problem with. It's the political expediency of those Muslims who aren't well integrated, those Muslims who are radical, those Muslims who do have political dissent, those Muslims who don't want to tell the world that, oh, look, I support this football team. I have a barbecue on the weekend. I'm just as Aussie as you are. Those who, who are reluctant to say they're Australian or British, right? Um, they're, they're, they're important too, and I didn't like the sacrifice. So that that was that was a reason why I chose those two. Uh, Principally because of the figure of Uncle Sam, but also because they were, um, I guess, archimedial points and prominent figures in my own understanding of my politics.
0: Yeah. Um, Now, the the second mask you talk about is the militant mask, um, which uh, people hearing that might assume that that's one thing. Um, So perhaps you could kind of articulate what you mean by the militant mask. Um, And then you look at it, um, you know, through uh, some. Kind of personal anecdotes, but then you also think about um uh Hamza Yusuf um mm. who these people in North America will probably know better um but perhaps you could tell tell us a little bit about uh who he is and then how you sure. saw him embodying this militant mask
1: yeah, absolutely so with the first two masks um fabulous and militant um uh both uh, Walid Ali and nazim with you know and Sheikh Hamza Yusuf um I had a little bit of um, personal um, heartbreak around it. You know, I wanted to love them, right? I wanted to be on their side, and I felt they let me down. Well, you know, uh, very different from the third master, I'm sure we'll get to. So Sheikh Hamza Yusuf was one of those early uh, examples in my life where I felt like uh, he was such a well-articulated and brilliant uh, mind that could merge the philosophies of the West with, um, you know, a, a well grounded and um, uh, in the Islamic tradition, where and I, I wanted to basically sit at his feet and learn everything. But then, as time went through, and uh, his political responses became quite problematic and troubling for me, and I was struggling with it. And so, the militant mask here represents that second stage of colonialism where you kind of have to, you know, get rid of these radical demons from you, like. Um, and so the reason why it's militant is that Hamza used to spend a lot of time, I think, trying to distance Islam or the, or the pure Islam, the right Islam, the correct Islam from the kind of um, the terrorists or the, uh, the other Muslims or the, you know, the Muslims who have got it wrong. And in every act of colonialism that I could have studied or seen, you know, it's not as simple as you know, the Europeans come in and they fight locals. You know, the locals. Europeans could not have fought and won if they didn't turn the locals on each other. And that's the militant mask where you're, uh, you're you're fighting a military campaign, if you will, on the behalf of Europe or the behalf of the West or behalf of the colonial power. Um, and that stage, there is a compel compulsion from all of us, not only to show that we're fabulous at one level, but also showing that we're committed to the political project of the West, which means we're committed to fighting uh, you know this used to manifest itself very early on when we were uh kind of compelled to be native informants, compelled to help uh, policing agencies and all others find the terrorists within our community to find the radicals within our community and then we, we kind of turned upon each one, one another and we 're here we' are that militant mask is not our mask you know it 's very easy to think that the militant is the you know, that Muslim who who wants to go off and fight ISIS. But, you know, the first employment of us in this war was to fight against, you know, our own who were deemed radical. That was the first militant, you know, that was the the first compulsion. Like we have those who are sympathetic to the Taliban or whatnot, you know, and we are now armed with both the, the law and society's approval to go fight our own. And... Sheikh Hamza Yusuf became, especially when he began to uh, reformulate the problem of terrorism as one of terrorists lacking chivalry or proper understanding of Islam and so forth. And I found that really, really troubling. I, I you know, like, okay, maybe that's an aspect of it, but I felt like it was a kind of fundamental uh, attribution error, which meant is, yeah, maybe they have all these things, but I, surely you cannot reduce terror and violence to somebody lacking proper Islam, um, if that were the case, then we've accepted the West's fight. And the West's fight is that there's something wrong with their Islam. And that's a fantastic way to erase all else. Yeah. Um, and then there's a moment where we can still onto- kind of ontologize the colonial condition as a test from God. You know, that we should uh, take this almost, I mean, I could be entirely wrong here, but one of the messages was like to Accept, you know, in a way, uh, the kind of current political conditions that we have uh, and not fight back in a way that inevitably uh, demeans us. Now, I don't, I'm not here to, to judge the religious uh, aspect of that, but I am here to perhaps commentate on the convenience of this message uh, to the West and how it reflects a particular mask that almost all of us um, have to sometimes wear. And that's my point, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, enabled uh, through his narrative. And I think in subsequent years, uh, when it to his politics around racism and, you know, his scapegoating of postmodern this or that and whatnot, I I, I come to realize, you know, there's a kind of conservative streak here that has uh, borrowed a lot from an American political culture where religion is simply about being good citizens. and. I think that enables a particular view of how we respond to uh, the war and terror that disarms us. And although I will never, ever say that going off and fighting is, I can't give that fatwa, that's not my role. But what I can say is that, um, you know, blaming things on a lack of proper Islam only ever enables the Islamophobic narrative because that Islamophobic narrative centers Islam at the heart of why violence occurs. And I think that should be dismantled.
0: Um, Now, the last mask you uh, introduce um, is this triumphant mask. Um, And you use uh, this figure, Majid Nawaz, to kind of talk about how this uh, operates. Um, So what what exactly uh, is being kind of uh, put forth through this this uh, mm. this final mask
1: at this stage, it's just total identification with everything the West stands for. There is no longer resistance. now, your job is to simply promote uh, democracy, liberalism, secularism without ever critiquing or questioning their racial origins or how they've been used to weaponize and scandalize uh, others and minorities within the West, right So now you're an advocate for the kind of the purest Apollonian myths of the West. Uh, the blame is completely put back onto the other minorities for not integrating and celebrating, for holding on to things like Sharia and so forth. And effectively, although you're, and I'm not here questioning uh, Masjid's faith, or but you are put forward as that Muslim who, um, is a Muslim who sees the truth of the West and has no apologies um, in advocating and promoting um the West as uh, even a proper version of Islam. So, you know, like uh, much later on, I think this character, what's his name? Imam um, Talhidi comes and he's an even greater articulation of this where, you know, <laughs> it's almost like the worst Islamophobe who is a Muslim with a turban who says everything that Islamophobia in the, the CVE narrative wants to say behind, behind a Muslim um, voice, right? And Majid Nawaz became an example of that and he tells this journey from Hezbollah to Harih, how he, he kind of de-radicalised himself and eventually sees the light of democracy and so forth For now as an employed, um, socially employed, politically employed and maybe even financially employed, I don't know, don't wish to make those allegations, but um, fighter on the behalf of all that is uh, the ideals of the West and the politics of the West. Now, to be clear here, I, I'm not not interested in saying that anything that comes from the West is by virtue of it coming from the West erroneous or problematic, or that democracy in and of itself is a problem, or that liberalism has no value. That's never been my point. My point is, however, to give a closer reading of these things and to not erase from um, the, the history that helped these things be triumphant. Right? And so we, I don't want to erase the fact that secularism and democracy have been used as great weapons by oppressive regimes in the Muslim world, or the fact that liberalism has been racialized to uh, speak about progressive minds versus backward religious minds. This, this has to be brought into conversation. We can't just take for granted that just because you say things like, you know, all, all people are equal, that that matters. That's a great Apollonian truth. But in reality, it's very rarely exercised. And so the triumphant mask here is a mask of um, celebrating the West without critiquing it. It's accepting its victory, accepting its, uh, it as being the standard upon which all other human political um, design must uh, fall under. And it's the completion of the colonial project. You know, First, we discover its exotic- exoticness. Then we fight to remove its malignant militants through the militant mask. And then finally, we are victorious by saying that the only solution to all things is for us to adopt the most cherished of Western ideals.
0: Um, now, you, you mentioned earlier on in the conversation, um, and those that that read the book will will know this pretty quickly, that um, Saeed's Orientalism uh, was very influential in your thinking. And um, through, throughout the book, you kind of uh, – you reflect back on these kind of moments or readings of uh Saeed's work um which i i, th- I thought was great it, it really felt like a kind of conversation reading through the book um and so I, i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about yeah. your readings of orientalism how how does Saeed's work uh factor into your thinking and then how did you reflect on the the work in these three in relation to these three masks
1: yeah so, um, the three masks are also masks that I have worn, and that's something that I wanted to stress, you know, like, I don't want to make it sound like these three uh, examples that I used. I used them because, for a few reasons, they as of similar, uh, you know, positionality, you know, Western Muslim men, um, in two cases, I think, um, you know, raced uh, Muslim men, um, uh, Pakistani, Egyptian, and Um, So, but there are positionalities and I've adopted these positionalities and Edward Said does a couple of things here for me. Um, One, he helps me through various readings I had of Said. So let's say I read Orientalism three times. I think I've read it back and forth much more, but let's say I had three dominant readings of Edward Said and these three dominant readings actually in many ways reflected the masks that I wore, um, but also reflected the kind of, Political stages in my development to lead me up to where I was when I wrote the book, and so the first reading of Saeed uh, that I read was, I think, the crudest and most simplest one that um, often is, you know, heard about, and that is Said making the point that Muslims are misrepresented, or not, not. He doesn't specifically speak about Muslims; he speaks about the Oriental, and of course, a big part of that is the, the Islamic world. But, you know, we're exotic, violent, we're stereotypically other and our definition is defined by um, us not being the West and we lack what the West has and so forth. And that was my first reading. And from the moment I read that book, I could see it everywhere. You know, you, you grew up watching Aladdin, you knew it was kind of something wrong, but you're kind of glad that there's something <laughs> about your world being re- represented. And then you take a closer look and you're like, why is there uh, – a, a monkey called Abu and a tiger called Raj, like what's going on? And uh, so there's this this misrepresentation. And that was the easy part. And that, that's related to uh, a compulsion to translate, right? Related to me to correct these stereotypes, to go out there and speak about the complexity of the Muslim world and to rubbish uh, the simplicity of these stereotypes. And you're stuck in the, that stage, and many people remain in that stage. And the Islamic Museum that I spoke about visiting, I think, is always in that stage. Their entire job is to tell visitors that, hey, look how fabulous we are, look how we're not the stereotype, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the second reading of Saeed was a little bit more difficult for me, and I began to fall out of love with Saïd because I felt like he was still relying on. You know, on um, how do i say it um it. nevertheless ends up saying things like there is no authentic or singular islam right and that may well be true but i have problems with that because i do believe there is an ontological claim made by islam that creates the plurality of its differences and its contest i could not deny uh, a singular islam and i don't believe that it's uh, oppositional to the idea that uh, islam carries plurality with it um i don't believe that it has to be one or other. You, you don't have to believe that there is a sole Islam and that uh, no plurality exists within the Islamicate world. The plurality exists for me because there's a claim to what that singularity means. And so the side then, as many critics have highlighted, relies on this kind of secular subject, right? And that's when we get to the triumphant master. His critic, right, uh, was a secular critic. secular humanist and you know i won't be the first to have said this um but um you know he takes an entire journey to dismantle how the western part was you know created and developed through its opposition to the muslim world only for him to conclude by some of the most idealized apollonian values of the western world including its humanism and its secularism and i Problem with that. And this is when I fell out of love with Said. I'm like, okay, you do a great job in showing us that the problem of stereotyping and representations tied to power and tied to um, the idea of a kind of institution that uh, is not politically neutral and its science has to be questioned, and that institution being academia or oriental studies, only for, for you to ask me to be a critic in the greatest of secular uh, humanist traditions. Uh, so in between somewhere there, uh, there was an over-identification. This is the militant mask. Over-identification with a pure, authentic Islam. And that was probably the most problematic part of my stage of my life, my, when I tried too hard to play authentic. And of course, that authenticity was just this oriental stereotype, right? Uh, it was just, I am I am this true Muslim. and But I, I wasn't grounded properly in Islamic traditions. I wasn't taught properly. I wasn't immersed in its culture. I was just performing authenticity. And so those three readings of Said uh, mirrored for me the kind of fabulous um, um, militant and eventually triumphant. But, but at the end, I realized that what Said did, and I maybe misread him, uh, was in taking my journey through re- the various different readings of Said, He he helped develop various questions and in many ways I'm he what he was asking for this kind of exilic critic and the the critic in exile who never stays in one spot always grows refuses to stay at one station um I kind of accidentally mirrored the way I read him over three different stages you know I was never satisfied to stay at one stage of orientalism in that sense, I'm always grateful, and you don't have to agree. But I'm, I'm grateful for the journey that he took me on. Very, very important text, and I learned to appreciate his humility and humbleness and rootedness and his wonderful breadth of thinking, without necessarily uh, uh, buying the idea that the best of critics is grounded in their humanism. Um, that said, I don't have a particular problem with it. But in reading back to it, uh, uh, Say's book was super influential because. I could tr- literally trace, um, you know, you, you sometimes you watch a movie and you remember when you first watched it, the kind of mood you were in um, or you watch a movie way back when and, and you watched it as a kid and it's not as funny as you thought, right? I can, I can remember three different stages of my mood or my political state in reading Edward Said and tracing those in an autoethnography um, helped me recognize both my growth but also how I was compelled to wear different masks at different stages.
0: Yeah, I, it's a great. It would be a great book to read along. Uh, Orientalism, I think, um, for courses and things like that. Um, especially because of the the, the tone of uh, Said's work, which is I think tricky for a lot of students today. But um, whereas yours is almost the uh, the, the kind of uh, exact opposite in terms of how. Uh, easy it is to kind of engage and get, get wrapped up into your your narrative the way you've written it. So um, the book also, it does a really great job of kind of, uh, you know, it doesn't feel static in the way a lot of books do. Um, so I, I if there's anything else you want to say about the book, I mean, there's tons of details and short little snippets that, that we didn't cover. Um, but uh, so, so feel free to say anything else that you, you feel like you didn't get to talk about. Um but I was wondering about these kind of um, like c- continuing thinking about this this process and these ongoing shifts um, and if you have reflections uh, in your thinking since the book has been published have you have you developed your your thoughts on these ideas of masking is there is there a fourth mask or uh, <laughs> even are, are there other reactions that you've had uh, to the book that have made you kind of think
1: about things in in, in new yeah. ways perhaps? Um, so when I finished the book, I thought it was an absolute disaster. Like, let me be clear about that. And it, was just, <laughs> it was six weeks in, and I, I I had to submit it. And you know, I got my family, my wife, my kids, just to force me to press enter. And I remember my uh, young daughter was very very keen to press the enter button, um, <laughs> just just to press the button. And so uh, as soon as I sent it, I was like, "That's it, done. No no one's going to." First of all, the editors aren't going to accept this, and yeah, I'm 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 going to look for a new job tomorrow. So um, (laughs) then I remember sitting down and I tried to put it out of my head, and I was like, and I didn't really hear back, and I was upset because what happened is that I I was late by about as I mentioned, and uh, the editors uh, Roman Littlefield sent it off to reviewers. And I was like, no, no, it's not finished. I just wanted to give it to you to give you an impression, right? <laughs> and they sent it off to reviewers anyway. And one of the reviewers was Jill Aninger from Columbia, uh, a wonderful thinker and somebody I deeply admired. And uh, that brought all sorts of anxiety for me. And a student of Edward Said, I was like, oh, my God, you know, he's a contemporary who's had conversations with Edward Said at in Columbia University, and he's reading my book. I, you know, that's it, done. Um, and Googling how to change my name and so forth. And, <laughs> Right. So, And then one day, I don't know how this happened, um, I, I suddenly got a notification because I'm signed up to Google Scholars or something like that, and there was a review of my book, and it was from Jill, and it was a glowing review, and I was like, what is going on, right? So then all of a sudden, from that point onwards, I, I felt like people understood what I was trying to do, and I felt like it was appreciated, and I was shocked. I'm not going to lie, I was absolutely shocked that I pulled it off, then I started worrying about all other things, about whether or not um, they had read the right version. <laughs> it's like, what have I missed, and so forth. But that, you know, like a lot of early researchers, especially those who have been raised or have these designs to push back against uh, mainstream society, and you know, academia is a tough place to find your space in it, especially if you're dealing around critical race studies and issues like that and if you're a minority and a lot of us have developed imposter syndrome of some form or other and don't believe we belong and so uh over the years um up until arsem wrote a review and others in my own circles and community were grateful and you know it was so wonderful for me to receive emails and or twitter posts or otherwise by saying thank you for putting words." to what i was trying to say and the same kind of feeling that i got from Fanon, i felt like i was repaying back that debt to other muslims there were a few critic criticisms later on but i think i mean look i think every author will be defensive of some sort by saying a lot of the critics didn't understand what i was trying to say and <laughs> you know um i feel in some cases that's valid. but if i'm trying to give the best argument possible and apply the principle of charity i think their concerns about me um not being Islamic or grounded in the Islamic tradition enough is fair, but I never tried that. I mean, I'm very clear. I think it's in page three or something or other where I speak about my contradiction of trying to oppose Western uh, epistemic racism through Western language, and it's an old uh, post-colonial argument. How do we uh, underline the King's language by using the King's language? Right. So uh, that criticism, I think, is is fair. Uh, you know, why using these old Greek analogies and, you know, stuck for a lot of these deities and so forth. But I, that criticism has been rare and I think it's motivated partly because of my criticism of Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, but I I don't want to uh, reduce all criticisms to, you know, the other side being um, petty like that. I, there, there are, uh, I, I think, legitimate claims to questions to come out of it, such as, how does um, somebody who identifies uh, as Islamic opposing Western racism, if you will, and not relying on traditional uh, primary Islamic sources? I think that's an important question. You know, I and I, uh, I'm speaking about a space that I find myself in. And it wasn't my project to do that, but I, I get that. And so I've reflected since then about what it may mean to read more closely, be more grounded in Islamic tradition, and continue the project of speaking about the pressures to deal with the war and terror. Um, you know, uh, so the fourth mask, if there is one, is maybe the mask that speaks about masks as a way to not uh, connect to that tradition that um, you know has been neglected. But uh, overall, um, I've been surprised. I've been uh, by the positive reaction that I've got um, and the and it has brought me some um, comfort to know that I've helped um, some young Muslims uh, deal with uh, what they always knew was happening and I if I do nothing else in for a remainder of my career wherever it may take me <laughs> um, I'll I'll be I'm glad, uh, alhamdulillah, I've done that. And that for me was, um, you know, um, one of the main aims. The second aim is uh, my daughter recently mentioned. And she's about 10 now. She's slowly speaking about racism in a way. And she has promised to use my book when she goes to high school and anybody's racist. <laughs> and I think what she means by use my book is to throw it at them. So I don't think... <laughs> she particularly means she's going to walk them through the readings but yeah um so uh if my book can book can be used as some type of projectile <laughs> against racists, all the more the better
0: yeah that's great um uh you know people that read this book and hopefully people that have heard your uh conversations about it uh here and elsewhere will, will want uh, to hear more from you, obviously. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about um, things you might uh, be working on or, or projects that you have kind of
1: uh, Yeah, sure. Well, I, I think I'm on my way out of academia, I, I, but I've been saying that for five years, right, and I'm still here. <laughs> so um, I don't know, but um, getting off social media was a big thing for me because I felt like I've hit a wall. Uh, in all of the things that I'm doing and um, not growing. Growth for me is somewhat important. You know, fighting racism, Islamophobia, comes at a particular cost and uh, you kind of collapse into a particular language and uh, echo chamber. And uh, from a spiritual growth sort of perspective, it wasn't helping me. I, for whatever reason, and I don't blame anybody for doing this, I became the critical race theory guy. Right, and I became the guy in the Muslim community who had to advocate for. And I don't mind doing that. I've got no problem with talking about racism in both an ontological and political and important way. Um, to be part of a broader pedagogical, public pedagogical tradition of of teaching one another about our experiences, I've got no problem with that. But I kind of feel like I've hit a wall. I kind of feel like the current political climate we're in—it's um, kind of cultural wars between social activists and you know, uh, traditionalists is is tiring and unnecessary. So I've moved away a little bit to kind of focus on another feature of what it is that I have always been um, interested in and I've studied uh, trying to complete uh, psychology in order to go down the counseling or therapy line uh, and think about what furious therapy might look like. It was therapeutic to write my book. From what some people have told me, it's therapeutic to read it. it's just as it was for me to read Fanon. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm no longer as committed and motivated to the, what I think is the academic myth of entering the marketplace of ideas and having this contest about well, I, I'm more committed to thinking about the kind of, and I think there's a chapter in my book called The Psychic Register of Muslims. Uh, so it's a continuation of that project. What, what, it may, what does it mean to, to kind of spiritually grow at this time what is, you know, an internal therapy may look like about dealing with racism? And I'm trying to merge here my previous political theory and philosophy training with um, my new training in psychology. Now, how that will manifest in work, I'm, I'm writing a couple of books, but um, I'm reluctant to tell you what they are because they may never, ever come out, okay? <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to write a book about how racism works. I'm trying to write a book about rage. Um because a lot of um to give you a very quick answer, I I spoke in very one of the early chapters of my book about this, this dormant Islamist inside of me. This kind of like um you know, I don't know if this will get me in trouble. I'm just gonna say it and see how it goes. But um <laughs> this kind of like Osama bin Laden type angry voice that I felt was now I don't think it's authentically me, but there's something in there. There's there's a rage in there you know, about um, the way I see the violence is done towards um, people of colour around the world, right? Um, and I kept that voice down because that's my job, to make sure that I do, do not become, if you will, um, do not romanticise violence for the sake of it, right? Um, because I, I do believe in peace. I do believe in a type of uh, growth that is built on the best of principles that I find in my tradition, you know, to not harm, to not be excessive in that, in that fighting back. But I'm also interested from a purely academic perspective about the psychology of that voice that hides dormant within me. And I, I want to have a conversation with it, not because I, I, I want it to, to be me, but I want, you know, i spent so much time repressing it that what would it say if I let it out? What, what, what argument would it win? What arguments would it not win? You know rather than me continually saying, "No, that's not who I am, that's not the Islam I identify with. let let the bird out of the cage and let it sing its song, however ugly it is and i I wanted to imagine me writing a conversation about my own rage, having a conversation with my rage, you know, without feeling the compulsion to wear a mask, let it be unmasked um now, you know life's got in the way, and i I hope that I get to a stage and state where I fall back in love with um, producing books. But at the moment, um, you know, I'm I'm exploring ideas and having internal conversations and trying to survive the current stage of where I'm at.
0: Yeah. Well, um, those, those sound really interesting. And I hope that uh, they they come out some way, Uh, not necessarily as books, but. uh,
1: Well, yeah, I've got, I've, (laughs) I've got contracts for them. I just, yeah. Hopefully, we can continue to to, to hear your voice. Uh,
0: in, you know, we, I know you've written in the Guardian and other public spaces. So um, mm. I, I appreciate that about your kind of uh, your you. voice as well. You're not limiting it to the kind of academic domain. So, um, so good luck. I hope you. I hope those do kind of emerge in some productive way for you because they're they're productive for your readers. I think.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Um. I mean, they're they should come out, but um, I'm I'm going slower. Uh, and yeah, hopefully, God willing, that they will be uh, works that I finish. But thank you for the opportunity, and I appreciate uh, the kind words um, regards to my work. So, and I hope to be in one way or another um, around. I, but we'll see where <laughs> where God has what has planned for me.
0: That was my conversation with Yasser Morsi about radical skin, moderate masks. De-Radicalizing the Muslim and Racism in Post-Racial Societies, published with Roman and Littlefield in 2017. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, and we hope you'll check us out again.